Uh, so yeah, I'm going to be reading starting at uh, verse 21 of chapter 3 and we'll go through until 4.13. So bear with me with the, the tough names. Luke chapter 3. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jenna, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nam, the son of Elsie, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josach, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Cosim, the son of Elamadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joseph, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikam, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashron, the son of Eminabadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Shurug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of, e the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Araxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lemech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalal, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Thank you. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 years he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. 
They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Uh, Let's pray now, shall we? Gracious Father, we want to thank you for Jesus. We thank you that uh, he is the one who makes a difference to our world. Father, we pray that he'd make the difference to our lives. As we uh, come to think about the scriptures now and as the young people do so in the hall, we just pray that you'd be enlightening us, giving us fresh insights, giving us a deeper understanding as to who Jesus is and what he's done for us and how we can depend on you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to talk about temptation. And when I think about temptation, I think about that uh, show that used to be on television called Sale of the Century. Anyone remember that? And uh, it was a really nothing kind of show uh, where uh, people would uh, answer questions correctly and they'd gain dollars as their points. And the whole idea of the show was to tempt people to take risks. So uh, you remember Tony Barber used to come running on to the, to the set all the time. And uh, if, a, if a contestant was in the lead, say by you know, $15, that was the way they scored the points, the host would, uh, would tempt them to, uh, uh, to buy something completely useless, like a $15,000 gold-studded wristwatch, uh, for only $13, thus reducing their lead to only $2 and making things more risky for them. And when they resisted temptation, he'd come at it again. He'll say, not only will I give you this diamond-studded wristwatch, but I'll throw in $2,000 cash as well uh, to tempt them to potentially lose the game. Temptation, though, Temptation isn't just something which we see on TV game shows. Temptation is something which we live with every single day of our lives. Sometimes temptation is a good thing. Sometimes we might say, well, I'm tempted to to go and help that person who's in need. That's a good thing. Sometimes temptation is negative. Uh, like when I'm tempted to eat that chocolate cake that Cassie says, Scott, you really shouldn't be eating more of that chocolate cake, but I'm tempted, and I usually fall. Sometimes it's uh, <clears throat> temptation to, do, to be enticed uh, to do something which our, con- our society just considers to be wrong. But in the Bible, the word temptation actually means something, something which is deeper than that, actually. Temptation is an enticement to behave in a manner which is contrary to the will of God. That's temptation in the Bible. Remember our recent series on Exodus when we looked at the commandments? And we saw that the, that the Ten Commandments can be summarised by two commandments, uh, to love God and to love your neighbour. In fact, Jesus says, upon, upon these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets, to love God and to love our neighbour. And when we attempted to not love God, not act in a way that 
puts God first or not act in a way which puts our neighbour first, when we're tempt, tempted uh, not to love God and love our neighbour and we cave into that temptation, then that's when temptation becomes sin, which leads to brokenness and which leads to judgment. The Bible, though, tells us about one person who never caved into temptation. One person who never, who never sinned. And I wonder if you've ever taken the time to reflect on that and to reflect on what the sinlessness of Jesus would actually look like in practice. What would it be like to, uh, for someone to be free of all sin, to never actually fall to temptation? Um, one of the members of our church, I can see her here now, who's a mother, said recently, wow, wouldn't it be great to have him as your child? <clears throat> what a dream child. Jesus would have parenting made easy. It's hard for us to imagine what it would be like to have a child who was never selfish or never disobedient. Think about having a friend. What would it be like to have a friend who, never <clears throat> who was perfect? who never fell to temptation. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around because it's not part of our experience, is it? And that's, there's a good reason for that. Let's open our Bibles now to uh, Luke chapter 3 <clears throat> because in our passage today we learn about the sinlessness of Jesus and its importance to us. So if you open your Bibles at Luke chapter 3 and of course there's an outline of the talk so that you can take notes or at least know how much, how much longer there is to go in the talk. But uh, that's in your bulletins. Now, the context here in Luke chapter 3, <clears throat> starting at verses, in verses 21 to 23, is that Jesus has just been baptised by the Jordan River by his cousin John. And as he's praying, we're told by Luke that heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus as a dove. And then an announcement is made from heaven. Um, do you see the announcement? It's an announcement which comes from God. And the announcement from heaven declares, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Three things. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Imagine that. Imagine the scene. There's a, a crowd of Jews who have, uh, who have all responded to the message of, Je of John the Baptist to put God first in their lives. And they've responded by being baptised. They want God to be at the centre of their lives. And so by being baptised himself, you see, Jesus had no need to be cleansed of sin, that by being baptised, Jesus is expressing his oneness with these, these Jews, with these Israelites, these men and women who want God to be at the centre of their lives. So Jesus is, after they're baptised, Jesus is baptised, and then Jesus is proclaimed from heaven to be the Son of God. 
Now, this was a day which the Old Testament had pointed towards. Um, passages like Psalm 2, for example, great psalm, you can look at it later on. Psalm 2 is about uh, God's future anointed king and the conflict that he has with the rulers of this world. But it's about God's future anointed king who would be the king of kings, who would be the one before whom other kings would need to bow down to, who would be the one who you could find refuge in. He would be the king of kings. And when in Psalm 2 God addresses this future king of kings, he says to him, you are my son. You are my son. And now, by the Jordan River, at the age of 30, which in some ways was the age of commissioning for public service in the ancient world, at the age of 30, this one, Jesus, is publicly declared by God to be, as in Psalm 2, my son. You are my son. And here he is anointed. The kings of Israel were anointed with oil, but here Jesus is anointed not with oil, but he is anointed with the, with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who comes down uh, in bodily form uh, as, a, as a dove. Now, uh, brothers and sisters, God is one God, three persons. Uh, God is uh, Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. And here in this scene, we, we see all three persons of the Trinity are together. Uh, the voice from God the Father, the announcement from God the Father comes from the heavens uh, towards God the Son. And now God the Holy Spirit is with God the Son as he begins his, his work to establish the everlasting kingdom of God as he is public, publicly proclaimed from heaven to be the son of God as in Psalm 2. Now it was, uh, it was really good to actually hear uh, the genealogy being read to us earlier on. Um, wonderful Hebrew names like Zerubbabel and Arphaxad and Methuselah we don't uh, hear too many Christian parents naming their kids by those names, do we? But they're great names. Uh, although it would be tempting, and here's that word again, to have just skipped over the reading of it. But the genealogy is, is really important, otherwise Luke would not have put it there. Uh, you see, the Jews were fastidious uh, about keeping family records uh, they had no need for Ancestry.com and I challenge Ancestry.com to uh, do as good a family uh, tree as that uh, because here Luke records the family line of Jesus and he does so through the line of his legal father, Joseph. So he makes the point, Jesus who was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. He's going through the legal line of Joseph 
It's a long list. I counted 75 generations. I, I didn't double-check that, but it's about 75 generations because 75 times in that section it, it uses three words. Three words, the son of. And there's some familiar names in that list. Like David, the son of Jesse. Uh, Abraham, the son of Terah. And Adam, the son of God. These are important names. These are important people because God had made some important promises to these people. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16... The son of Adam would crush the serpent's head. That's a promise. Uh, in Genesis chapter 12, through his son, Abraham would bless the entire world. That's a promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, a son of David would sit on God's throne forever. That's a promise. And friends, these are promises which lead to one man who has just been declared from heaven to be the Son of God. And now that time has arrived for the fulfilment of those promises. In Genesis 3, the promise was that the descendant of Eve would crush the serpent's head but that the serpent would strike his heel. And so here in chapter 4 in verses 1 through to 13 the serpent appears again. The serpent appears in order to strike at the sun. And his goal is to destroy the fulfilment of God's promises. And friends, God's promises, God's plan was to save us from the penalty which we deserve for all of the times when we've given in to temptation. God's promise was to send another one to pay the price for us. But that other one would need to be qualified. That other one would need to be the one who could rightfully stand in our place as our representative who would be capable of paying the penalty for sin. Now, there are two reasons why Jesus is qualified to pay for our sins. First of all, he is valuable. His sacrifice would be valuable because he is God the Son. He is the Son of God. Secondly, Jesus is qualified to pay for our sins because he doesn't need to pay for his own sin. Because he is a spotless sacrifice, one who has never sinned. So in order to uh, defeat God, this ancient serpent, Satan, must now successfully tempt Jesus tempt him to, to, to forsake his status as the sinless son of God. And so in verses 1 and 2, Jesus, now full of the Holy Spirit, 
was led by the Spirit into the desert. And it is here in the desert that we now see that Jesus, in many ways, is actually like the nation of Israel. Uh, Think back again to our series on Exodus. Uh, In Exodus chapter 4, when Moses was sent by God to Pharaoh, uh, this is what Moses was to say, and I quote. uh, He was to say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. Now, when God's son, Israel, was rescued from Egypt, they spent a bit of time in the desert, didn't they? How long did they spend in the desert? How many years was it? It was was 40 years in the desert. And here, God's son, Jesus, spends... 40 days in the desert. And so in this way, Jesus is is like Israel. And this was now Satan's time to tempt Jesus. And he does so three times. First of all, in verses 3 and 4, Satan seeks to tempt Jesus by exploiting Jesus' hunger. Let me read that for you. We're in chapter 4. And uh, second part of verse 2, where we're told that he ate nothing during those days, those 40 days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Surprise, surprise. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. Now, in Exodus chapter 16, Israel had just been miraculously rescued from from Egypt. And you know the story, don't you? It was spectacular. Uh, The Egyptian army is pursuing Israel. Uh, They get to the the sea and miraculously the waters part. Israel crosses through. The Egyptian army comes into pursuit and the waters close in on them and the army is, is drowned. Uh, They are defeated. It was a great, uh, miraculous action of God for the salvation and for the care of his son, Israel. And yet, they were only days into the desert when they started to feel a bit hungry and they turned on Moses. They said to Moses, what have you done to us? I mean, back in Egypt, we had pots of meat that we could eat. We had all the food that we wanted to eat. Uh, And what have you done? You've brought us out here into the desert to starve to death. They have just experienced the great saving action of God in the Exodus and now they're complaining. Now they are doubting that God will actually care for them in the desert And so they say to Moses, we would have been better off if we'd been back in Egypt and if we died there, at least we would have died with food in our bellies. And so they are not trusting in God. They failed to trust in God. They succumbed to temptation. But now Jesus, like Israel, without food, 
in the desert is tempted by the evil one and you notice the nature of the temptation where he says, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, then you've got the power to turn this stone into bread. Why don't you go ahead and do it? That is, use your power as God's son to make bread yourself. Don't trust in your heavenly father to supply your need. Be like Israel. Be like Israel. But unlike Israel, Jesus stands firm. Jesus resists the temptations of Satan and he quotes to Satan a word which God gave to Israel whilst they were in the desert in Deuteronomy where he says, man does not live on bread alone. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the passage goes on to say, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what Jesus is saying here is, I'm going to stake my, my life on trusting God and his word. And therefore, by resisting temptation, Jesus has now maintained his status as the sinless son of God. Now, there's a, there's a three strikes policy going on here and that is strike number one uh, against the evil one. Secondly, the second temptation is in verses five through to eight where Satan tempts Jesus with power and glory, uh, takes him up to a high place and and shows him in an instant a vision of all of the kingdoms of the world and he says to Jesus, guess what? They belong to me. They're mine. Now he's the father of all lies, isn't he? And the best lies are kind of half lies and half truths. And this is a bit of a half truth because, well, he is the prince of this world for the time being, temporarily. And he says to Jesus, look at, look at the kingdoms of the world. Look at the, 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 the splendour and the grandeur and the authority and I, I can give it to you. And all you need to do, and it's pretty simple, you just need to bow down and worship me. Nothing to it, really. Uh, become my son. Stop following God as your father. Follow me. Make me your father. Give up your status as the son of God. And Jesus responds with a word which was also given by God to Israel in the desert. It was a word against idolatry in verse 8 where he responds by saying, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That was a command which Israel failed to obey. They caved into the temptation to idolatry, but Jesus did not. Jesus resisted the temptation and again he maintained his status as the sinless son of God. That's strike two. Thirdly, in verses 9 through to 12, Jesus, Satan tempted Jesus to doubt and to test whether or not God was faithful to his word. Have a look at verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, 
Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, notice here that um, Satan's starting to cotton on and he realises that if he's going to deal with Jesus, he's going to deal with him biblically. Uh, So he quotes scripture to Jesus. He says, you know, God has made this promise that uh, his angels will protect you, that they'll look after you, that they'll care for you. So uh, why not um, take the jump? (laughs) See what happens. And again, Jesus responds with a command that God gave Israel in the desert from Deuteronomy, where he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So he's resisted the temptation for the third time and in so doing again he has maintained his status as the sinless son of God. That's three strikes and you're out. Uh, In James chapter 4 we're told resist the devil and he will flee from you. A lot of the problem we have is that when we're faced with temptation that uh, at the first instance that we, we don't resist the devil, that we're not as committed to obeying God as we should and we're not actually as knowledgeable of the scriptures and knowing what it means to obey God, that uh, we, we cave in a little bit too easily. But yet if we stand firm, if we resist the devil, then... What you find is this, that the more you give in to temptation, the easier it is to give in to temptation next time and it becomes part of, part of our character. But when we actually resist the devil and say no to temptation and stand firm, as hard as that is, then the next time and the time after and the time after that, well, actually godliness becomes more a part of, of who we are. Whatever it is that you're tempted in, uh, whatever area in your life it needs to change, whether it be it uh, gossip or slander or uh, lust or theft or whatever, the, the more we stand firm against temptation, well, Satan will actually flee from us. So we need to stand firm, don't we? And, t- and Satan fled from Jesus. We see that in verse 13 here. In verse 13, having failed three times, Satan left Jesus, but not for good. He left Jesus for an opportune time. And that opportune time would happen about three years later on, not in a desert, but in a garden. Come with me to the back end of Luke's Gospel, to Luke chapter 22. The scene here is that uh, Jesus and his disciples have just celebrated the the Last Supper together. Judas has left and gone out into the darkness. And now Jesus, in verse 39, 
went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. And the Garden of Gethsemane is at the foothill of the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Facing the very purpose for which he came, to be the sinless Son of God, the perfect sacrifice, substitute for, for us, to fulfil God's promises, to crush the serpent's head, to bless the world, and to establish a kingdom which would never end, now is the time for him to go to the cross, to become sin. As Paul says, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now is the time to go to the altar, to be the sacrifice for sin, to be separated from God the Father and from God the Spirit with whom he had been in perfect fellowship for all of eternity, to pay our penalty, to pay for all of the times when we've succumbed to temptation so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be with him in God's eternal kingdom. Friends, uh, we, cannot, we cannot fathom the, the temptation which Jesus faced. Uh, the battle which was so intense that resistance to the temptation caused him to sweat drops of blood in the garden. We cannot fathom that. But notice also that even in the garden, especially in the garden, that God was faithful to the promise that Satan had thrown at him, that an angel of the Lord did come to him, that an angel of the Lord did minister to him and care for him in the garden. Indeed, in Matthew's Gospel, when, when the soldiers came to the garden to arrest Jesus, remember one of the disciples pulled out his sword and sliced, sliced off the ear of one of the servants that was there? And Jesus spoke to him. These are the words he said. He said, Do, not, do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will at once Put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Don't you think that I could do that? 
that I could ask the Father to do it? Don't you think that if I asked the Father to do it, that he would do it? Of course he would. But he goes on to say, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say that it must happen this way? Not my will be done, says Jesus, but yours. Jesus again resists temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane and he goes to the cross. Now, of course, the, the implications of all of this are absolutely enormous. Uh, imagine if Jesus had fallen to temptation in the desert or throughout his life at any point or in the Garden of Gethsemane. Imagine that. Well, it's, I don't want to imagine that because that would be a world where there is no forgiveness. That would be a world where there is no salvation. That would be a world where there is no eternal kingdom of God. But where Israel fell, Jesus stood firm. Where you and I fall, Jesus stood firm. And when you and I fall, because he went to the cross, Jesus actually stands in our place. The perfect Son of God, the perfect Israel, who never sinned. Now, God does not want us to fall. God does not want us to be people who live our lives gratifying our, our own sinful desires. That's why Jesus had to die for our sins. But in this, this side of heaven, we know that even as we seek in gratitude to God to be holy people, to stand firm against temptation, to rid our character and our lives of sin, even so, we know that we fall to temptation. And we will do so until we're given a new body, until the Lord Jesus returns again. The Bible never teaches sinless perfectionism this side of the second coming. But as we sin, as when we do fall to temptation, we do not do so as those who have no hope. We do not do so in despair because we know that when we approach the throne of grace, that we can do so with confidence. Because as the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 and uh, in chapter uh, 4 of Hebrews, that we actually have a high priest, Jesus, who has been tempted in every way, but was without sin. But because he's been tempted in every way, just as we are, he is not a cold, hard, ignorant judge. Rather, he is one who has been through what we go through. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our experiences of life. And he actually sympathises with us. He sympathises with you. When you fall to temptation, Jesus knows what it is that you've been through. 
And so we can come to him, our sympathetic high priest, and in coming to him know that we can find grace and we can find mercy and understanding in our time of need, which actually inspires us to want to work harder at putting God first in our lives out of a love for who he is and what he's done for us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for your great plan of salvation. We thank you, Father God, for that perfect sinlessness of Jesus that he withstood, that he that he resisted temptation, that he withstood everything that the evil one threw at him so that he would be the perfect sacrifice for sin. Father, we thank you that he is not an impersonal um, judge, but rather that he, he understands what it is to live in this fallen world. He understands the circumstances that we find ourselves in, that he's sympathetic and that he stands in our place as the perfect advocate that we have with yourself. Father, help us to be men and women who uh, take sin seriously and who are equipped to uh, acknowledge temptation for what it is and to, to stand firm. But knowing that when we fall, that we have a sympathetic high priest. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.